My name is Kathy Schaaf, and I have the honor of reading God's Word this morning. It's Matthew 17, starting at verse 14. Can everyone please stand? Thank you. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, there we go. Let me start over. Okay, if I could say anything about this passage of Scripture, it's a dangerous passage of Scripture. I remember when I was a kid, the first time I ever heard about this passage or this saying of Jesus was from my older brother. I can't remember how old we were, but he said something along the lines, look, Jesus said that we have, if we have the faith of a mustard seed, like a really small seed, if we have even that much faith, that we can tell a mountain to move and it'll do it. And I think he tried as hard as he could to get a mountain to move. I don't know what mountain. I don't know where he was wanting to move it, but he tried, and he tried, and my, my brother's very scientific, and I think he saw it as kind of a scientific experiment, like follow the scientific method, and if you can prove it, and it happens, and if you can reproduce it, then it's actually fact, and it didn't work. It wasn't repeatable. Couldn't move a mountain, and my brother has gone into a life of not believing in Jesus. It can be a faith killer, this passage. It can be a faith killer. It can also be an assurance killer. I had an, another friend in high school whose mom was really sick for several years with a, kind of an autoimmune disease where she was just lethargic, had no energy ever all the time and was losing weight and you know, thought she was going to die and all these, she was trying all these doctors and different things. And she had many friends who would come and pray for her and people from different churches in the community would come and pray for her. And some of those people would tell her point blank in the faith, in her, into her face, you are not being healed because you do not have enough faith. This passage can be an assurance killer. This passage, though, is interesting because it's not really a story about a healing like it appears to be. So in Matthew 17, the, the, Kathy just read verse 14, we have... Them coming down, it says, to the crowd. And them, is they, or they, is Jesus and Peter, James, and John, his three disciples. You remember they went up on the top of this mountain, and Jesus was changed before them, and Moses and Elijah showed up, and they had this crazy uh, mountaintop spiritual experience. They heard the voice of God. Now they've come down the mountain. It says, when they came to the crowd, 
man came up to him, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. So this man, he's desperate, right? You can imagine, and perhaps you've been in this place as a parent where you've been desperate for your child, desperate for the health of your child, desperate for the life of your child. And you're begging God with this humble request, with this lament even, begging God for mercy, crying out for him to help in a desperate situation. It's an understandable distress that this man is in. We can hear his prayer, his, his question, his, his request of Jesus is a prayer of lament. But the man and his son are not actually the focus of this story. So we're not going to spend a lot of time with them. Jesus' healing power is not even the focus of this story. The, the miracle itself is not the focus of the story. It gets one verse, verse 18. It says, Jesus rebuked the demon, it came out, and the boy was fine. That was it. That was, that was the extent of the detail about the miracle. The real focus of this story is actually right there in verse 16, where the man says this, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. This story is a story of the disciples' failure. And in some sense, it's a story of Jesus' frustration. Now, only, only a few times in, in Scripture, only a few times in the Gospels, do we see Jesus' emotions kind of unleashed. He's, he's usually pretty even keel. It keeps his emotions in check. Not that he wasn't emotional. He was human, fully human. He had emotions, but he normally kept them in check. And here we see him respond with overwhelming emotion. It, it, it's almost shocking how frustrated Jesus is with the failure of his disciples in verse 17. So he answers, and he's not answering this man specifically face-to-face. -face. He's kind of generally saying this thing. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. This is, this is Jesus, right? Fully divine, full of patience, slow to anger, now kind of pushed to the brink, right? He's venting his frustration. It's, it's a holy frustration. It's a righteous anger, but it's frustration and anger nonetheless. And I think it's probably tinged with some disappointment in his guise and and, and their inability, and, and, and some sadness as well, that they're not living how they're supposed to, how he wants them to, what he desires for them. So remember, Jesus and his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, they've, they've just come down from this otherworldly experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this story should echo in our minds. It should remind us of another story in the Old Testament, all the way back in Exodus 32. You remember Moses going up, on Mount Sinai to meet with God and spending 40 days on the mountain in the presence of God, having a fairly intense experience as God writes his law on two tablets and gives it to Moses and reveals himself as the covenant God to Moses. So Moses is on this mountaintop high. He's, you know, he's got Charlton Heston, right? He's got the two tablets with him coming down the mountain. And he comes down the mountain, and what does he find at the bottom? Chaos. He finds a party. He finds idolatry at the base of the mountain. And he tosses 
the tablets down and they break, and then it's pretty violent after that. I won't tell the whole story. You can go read it in Exodus chapter, th- chapter 2, but the people have created a golden calf. They've created an idol, and they're worshiping it. And this kind of rebellion was what became the norm for Israel. If you read the Old Testament, this is the kind of rebellion they fell into time and time again. And later in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses would say of them, they are a crooked and twisted generation, a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. Does that echo with you at all? What Jesus just said about this generation, a faithless and twisted generation. Moses led a people who seemingly never got it. I mean, that generation never got it so much that God made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years and die in the wilderness. And now here's the Son of God himself who spent 30 years walking amongst this generation. He's invested a couple years of his life into this inner circle of 12 guys, intensely discipling them, and they still don't get it. They're acting just like that generation of Israel who spent 40 years wandering and dying in the wilderness. So Jesus calls them a faithless generation. They're without faith. They don't trust God. And to be without faith for Jesus is to miss the most important thing. To live without faith is to utterly reject God. It's to live in a way that says we don't need God. To say that we weren't created to need Him. It's to reject Him. When Jesus returns, in fact, he says, when I return, faith is what I'll be looking for. This is what he says in Luke 18, 8. When the Son of Man comes, again, will he find faith on the earth? Faith is what God is desperately searching for among his created humanity. 2 Corinthians 16, 9, you might recognize. For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who who are wholeheartedly devoted to Him. You see, see how this verse defines faith? Defines it as wholehearted devotion. That's what Jesus is looking for. And He can't seem to find it anywhere, even in His disciples. They're a faithless generation. They're also, He says, a twisted generation. You get that, that picture of something being twisted it's, it's corrupted. It, it means perverted, bent. They're not living in the way that God intended them to live. And it's their lack of faith that has twisted them. To live without faith is to miss the purpose for which God created us. It's to miss why the purpose of our life, which is to be in a faith-filled relationship with Him. So if I tried to put diesel into my pickup, which is meant to run on gasoline, it wouldn't be very good for the engine. And in the same way, we were made to live on faith. And when we don't live on faith, then something is deeply wrong. So the disciples come to Jesus after he's performed this miracle. He sent a demon out of this boy. He's healed this boy, changed his life, given him back to his father. And they come to him. They come to him privately. They're befuddled. They're embarrassed, perhaps. 
And in verse 19, it says, The disciples came to him privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. And I, I'm curious about why the disciples came to him. Like if they were looking for, for answers, like, like for advice, like for maybe some technical pointers. Like, Jesus, did we say the wrong words? Like, okay, next time there's a demon-possessed kid, should we all surround him and, like, lift our hands up? Or are there, are there certain, like, incantations we need to say? Do we need to lay our hands on him? What, what are the tricks? What are the, what are the things that we need to do? What should we have done? What should we have said? We don't know what they said, but perhaps that's something. And I think Jesus cuts their pragmatism off at the roots, right? They're looking for something that works, it worked when you didn't, didn't work when we did it, what do we need? They're looking for an answer here. Their failure, though, didn't have anything to do with their technique. It had everything to do with their dependence upon God, which was absent. Now, this is the fifth time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus uses the phrase, little faith. And it's always used, every five times, it's always used to describe his disciples. So the first time is in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 30. Jesus is teaching them not to worry, like depend on God for our food, depend on God for your clothing. And then he says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow's thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And Jesus is saying that faith is radical dependence. It's radical dependence upon a loving Father who meets our every need. So, so rather than worrying, what faith does is it entrusts itself completely to the sovereign care of the Father. We see something similar when the, when the disciples later on, they forget to pack bread. They forget to pack food for a journey they're taking with Jesus. And Jesus again corrects them for their lack of trust in the Father's provision. Chapter 16, verse 8. It says, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Now remember that he said this to them after he had just finished feeding two crowds. One was a crowd of 5,000, one was a crowd of 4,000. Each time he only had a few loaves and a couple fish, and he fed 5,000 people. Jesus is able to provide. The Father is able to provide, and yet they're worried that they didn't have bread. The other two stories in which Jesus uses this phrase both take place on the lake of Galilee, and both take place during storms. In the first story, Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. He's sleeping in the back. The disciples are battling this storm. They're convinced they're about to die. They're in hysterics. They come to Jesus. They wake him up, and he immediately asks, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, got up, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. See, little faith is the kind of faith that is easily overcome by fear and dangers, fear of circumstances, fear of what might get at us. Another time the, the disciples are in the boat alone, a few chapters later, they're laboring against the waves. Jesus isn't with them, but he comes to them walking on the sea. 
And you know the story. Peter sees him and gets out of the boat and walks on the water to Jesus. But then it says, when he sees the waves, he falters. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And I love this story because in it, Peter boldly expresses faith. He exercises faith. He gets out of the boat. One of 12 guys to get out of the boat. But when he recognized danger, that's when he faltered. So his fear leads him to doubt, to hesitate, to to waver between faith and fear. Okay, so in each of these stories, we can see that Jesus calls out his disciples' little faith whenever they fail to fully depend upon God. And that gets expressed when fear, which, which can either be fear of danger, like fear of the storm or the waves, or fear of scarcity, that, that we're not going to have enough. When fear causes us to question God's ability to take care of us. Little faith doubts God's provision, and so it fails to depend on Him. And this is what happened when the disciples failed to drive the demon out of this boy. But the phrase little faith is a little bit misleading because it seems like there's some faith there. And I think that phrase actually gives the disciples a little bit too much credit. Because Jesus points out that if their faith had even been minuscule, the size of a tiny mustard seed, then they could have accomplished the impossible. Verse 20. For truly I say to you, and by the way, whenever Jesus says truly, that's the word amen. A lot of times he'll say amen, amen. Truly, truly. It means listen up. Pay attention. This is important. Truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. According to the scholar Michael Wilkins, Jesus sees in these disciples a faith which has failed or is bankrupt. There's nothing there. Jesus isn't saying your faith was too small. He's saying you you weren't exercising faith at all. You're faithless. By little faith, Jesus means lack of faith. So let's look a little bit closer because I think Jesus is making two profound points in these verses. And the first is he's saying that a lack of faith fails to access God's power. A lack of faith fails to access God's power. And why does a lack of faith, is a lack of faith not able to access God's power? Well, because it's looking for power somewhere else. Remember, little faith is a lack of dependence upon God. So, so perhaps the disciples were, were trusting in their own abilities, or, or they were trusting in the authority that, God had given, that Jesus had given them six chapters ago to cast out demons. But in the, in the moment, did they pray for the boy? Did they get on their knees and ask the father to help heal this kid? Or did they simply and arrogantly assume that they had what it took? And don't we do this all the time? I mean, don't we trust ourselves to get ourselves through the day and through our life, our, our own 
abilities, our power, our intelligence, our strength, our skills. We, we trust in ourselves to get through. We'll, we'll figure it out. We've always figured it out. I've got myself this far. Why can't I get myself further? We'll figure it out. We don't need any help, right? Or we trust in our stuff. We see our, our money, our finances, or, or our people, our family, our relationships, our, our job, our retirement accounts, even our government. We see these things as buffers against our fears. Things that we can use to, 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 to bring control and to give us a sense of security and comfort. And I think oftentimes, listen, I think oftentimes we're more afraid of not having money than we are of not having God. Self-sufficiency is a faith killer. And a lack of faith cuts us off from God's power. Now, the second thing, I think the second principle Jesus is pointing out here is just the inverse of the first, and it's simply this, that faith accesses God's power. If a lack of faith doesn't access God's power, then faith accesses God's power. We've already looked at five instances when the disciples displayed a lack of faith, right? But if you look at the book of Matthew, there's five other instances interspersed within these where we see faith achieving something miraculous. Okay, we, we call the, the stories about the disciples, we might call them little faith stories. And these ones we'll call faith stories. Whether it was a Roman centurion whose faith outmatched that of everyone in Israel and whose servant was healed because of it. Or, or the faith of four friends who bring a paralyzed friend to Jesus and they break through the roof and drop him down to Jesus. They go to great lengths to get him to Jesus and Jesus sees their faith and heals him. Forgives his sins too, by the way. There's a woman who suffered from bleeding for 12 years. There's two blind men that Jesus took into a house and asked them if they believed he could do what they asked. And finally, there's a foreigner, a Canaanite woman, who came to Jesus simply begging Jesus for crumbs. In each of these five faith stories, these people trust Jesus. They trust God, and God provides power to meet their needs. They all displayed faith, and in every instance, God responded with power. So according to Jesus himself, the kind of power, this kind of power, is accessed by faith. And make no mistake here, Jesus is talking about divine, supernatural power. He's talking about the kind of power that can move mountains. But I think if we're honest, this passage scares us to death. And I think one reason we're scared, and reasonably so, rightly so, is its potential for misuse, especially by hucksters, heretics, and fanatics. But also sometimes it gets misused by very well-meaning saints. And for instance, there's the prosperity gospel, which teaches you that if you have enough faith, God will give you anything that you want. You want money, you want a car, you want a yacht, you want an extra house, just have enough faith. Name it and claim it. And if you don't get what you want, like happened with my friend's mom, perhaps you have a disability or a disease, perhaps you have 
a loved one die, then your faith isn't big enough. This kind of garbage, and I call it garbage, destroys faith. It's false. It's a lie straight out of hell. It destroys faith by thinking that the size of our faith is what matters rather than the size of our God. But people will always twist God's word for their own ends. Our responsibility, though, is not to reject God's words just because somebody might get the wrong idea or because someone might misunderstand it or misuse it. Jesus is making a big claim here. And we need to understand what he means, not explain his words away. And sometimes we do that. In trying to explain it, we go ahead and explain it away, don't we? We make Jesus say something he's not saying so that he doesn't say the thing that we don't actually want him to say. Let me say that again. We twist Jesus' words to make him say something he's not saying so that he doesn't say the actual thing he's saying, which we really don't want to hear him say. And that's the second reason this scares us, because honestly, if we're honest, we're more like the disciples than we care to admit. We struggle with praying because it seems like God never hears. It seems that when we ask, He doesn't answer. We've been disappointed so many times that we've just given up. And for for the most part, life is good. I can handle it. I can get through on my own. We can figure things out in our own strength. Sure, God answers prayer, but we've become experts at explaining everything in a way that makes sense. We we explain everything scientific. So instead of having an an epileptic boy here that needs to be healed supernaturally, we say, you know what, that's something for the realm of medicine. And medicine is good. It's a gift from God. I think we should use it and access it as much as possible. But sometimes we give doctors, excuse me, Dr. Noah, don't mean to insult, but sometimes we give doctors more credit than we give to God. God doesn't cast out demons anymore, right? That's the realm of psychology. Just send them to a counselor. They'll be fine. Not to undercut counseling or anything like that. It's good. It's healthy. We whittle the things God can deal with down to a manageable size and reason away the reasons for faith. We only give Jesus the small problems so that he can deal with them. We hedge our bets. We pray, but we have something else going on here just in case. We don't want to get disappointed, and it's no wonder that our faith is lacking. And from this, we simply need to repent. We have to repent because we have made our God too small. And in the process, we've worked on destroying our faith if we haven't destroyed it altogether. So, how do we move mountains? What would life look like if we weren't scared of what Jesus is saying right here? What if instead we lived with an anticipation that our Father is actually looking to show Himself strong on our behalf? 
Because Jesus is talking, he isn't just talking about any old power here. He's not saying, hey, just, just plug into the 110 outlet. He's talking about creation power here. Mountain moving power. He's talking about the kind of power that brought order from chaos in Genesis chapter 1. He's talking about the kind of power that overcomes diseases and heals bodies and stills storms and walks on water and casts out demons. He's talking about accessing the very same power that raised him from the dead. This is what the Apostles Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He calls it the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. See, God has granted his people, he's granted us power through the Holy Spirit. But, but that power can't just be assumed, it must be asked for. We have to ask for it. And that's what faith does. Faith asks. To put it another way, God's power is accessed when we pray. And Jesus was the perfect example of a person who prayed. Jesus was completely dependent upon his Father. Why could Jesus walk on water? Why could Jesus calm a storm? Why could Jesus cast out a demon? Anybody? Nobody knows? Oh, I heard the answer. Generally, our answer is because he's the son of God, for crying out loud, of course he can do that kind of stuff. And it's true, but the picture we are shown in the Gospels is that as the obedient son of God, Jesus was able to do these things because he was completely dependent upon his father. He did these miracles in faith. He perfectly lived by faith. He prayed, he asked, he received. And what Jesus is doing is inviting us into his own life of radical dependence upon the Father as the Son of God and as sons and daughters of God. It's a life which by faith is able to access unprecedented power. But how? Now, I have never moved a mountain. I'll just admit that right up front. Never moved a mountain. Maybe like an anthill or something like that, but never a mountain. But here's what I think Jesus would say, and here's what I think I can say this morning, that mountain-moving faith begins with humility. Jesus is essentially saying to his disciples, you do not understand how desperately needy you are. And mountain-moving faith begins with our desperate need. His disciples had not admitted their need. They had not admitted their inability. And humility embraces the reality that if God doesn't act, we're toast. Humility even recognizes that the mustard seed of faith is a gift. See, faith isn't something to brag about. Faith isn't a matter of strength or of pride. We can only move mountains from our knees. 
get that. If you get one thing today, that sentence. We can only move mountains from our knees. We have to begin by getting low. True faith prays first. That's where we have to go is to prayer. True faith prays first because it begins with its own need. True faith prays always because it's purely dependent. It knows it has nothing to offer in any situation. Admitting that without Jesus, it can do nothing. Nothing's going to happen unless Jesus does something. And until we feel our desperate need for God right here, until we feel it in the core of our being, we will not start praying. And if we don't start praying, we won't be able to access God's power. Mountain-moving faith, secondly, prays big prayers. As I said a moment ago, I've never moved a mountain, but I have asked God to fill reservoirs. God answers prayer. A year ago, we and others in our county and city, we prayed for an end to a drought. We prayed that God would send moisture and that that moisture would fill our reservoirs. Let me show you a picture. I love graphs, but this is a graph from the Oregon Department of Reclamation. Okay, this is the green line, the dotted line there, is the reservoir level on Prineville Reservoir last year. October's on the far side, October of 2020. Two, I guess, and then through 2023. So you see the green line there? This is when we prayed. The end of February to early April, we prayed every Thursday for 24 hours that God would fill our reservoirs. This is when God answered the prayer in the next 40 days. I mean, quick, abundant. Nobody thought it was going to happen. And yeah, we can have, we, there's, there is surely a scientific explanation for this somehow. But I'm showing you data that shows that God answers prayer. Big prayers. And the more time that we spend with our Father in prayer, the more we will want the same things that He wants. That's why we spend time with Him, so that we can get our wills and our desires lined up with His. Not so that we can just get Him to meet ours like He's a, like he's a candy machine or something. The more we pray, the more connected with God we will be. And the more connected with God we are, the more we will ask Him for the things that He desires. And God desires big things. God wants His gospel to go to the ends of the world, that every nation and tribe and tongue would have His word and hear it and be able to respond. God wants to do big things. Things And God listens to the kind of person who has given themselves to be the kind of person who listens to God. Does that make sense? He listens to the kind of people who have become the kind of people who listen to Him. Mountain-moving faith prays big prayers. And then finally, mountain-moving faith takes risks. So faith prays, but it doesn't just pray, it also does. It acts. But it doesn't act by hedging its bets. It doesn't act by playing it safe. Faith bets big, not because it's flashy, not because it wants attention or wants to be in the winner's circle. Let me put it this way. The bigger God is, the bigger faith is. And the bigger God is, the more courageous faith is. The bigger God is, the more risks we will take for Him. Why? 
because we have a big God who wants to do big things with little people like us. And the question is, will we trust Him? Now, a warning. Because, again, it's easy to misuse and misunderstand this passage and even what I'm saying this morning. And I want to just give you three quick things that I want you to hear. Faith is not about quantity. When Jesus talks about a mustard seed of faith, he's, the point is that the littlest, most minuscule amount of faith taps into something outside of ourselves that is unlimited. And Jesus is saying that the smallest tap will suffice. The smallest tap will suffice. You, you have just a mustard seed. You can move mountains. Nothing will be impossible. It's not the size of our faith that matters. It's the size of our God that matters. Okay, faith is not about the quantity of it. Secondly, faith is not earned. You don't get faith by working harder, by having more willpower, by being stronger. Faith is not earned. It's a gift. It's something God gives to us. And then finally... Faith is not transactional. And what I mean by that is it's not about saying the right things. It's not, it's not about going through the right hoops or performing the right actions. Not, it's not about having the right formula so that God will give us what we want. Faith is not transactional. It's always relational. Faith is all about radical dependence. And if we, if we want to learn faith, if we want to grow in faith, if we want to exercise faith, we must pray. And I can't say it enough. This might be every sermon for the rest of the year, folks. We must pray. And so my invitation to you and my, my exhortation to you is come and pray with us. This last week we had seven different prayer times in the prayer room, and they were powerful. We dedicated that room on Wednesday night to be a room set aside for God's people to pray, to come together and pray. Join us. There's six different times every week through Lent that you can come and pray with us. Get on our knees together. Be dependent together. Cry out to God together. Cry together. Have somebody else hold you up with them in prayer. I encourage you to come. And if you look at the times and you say, you know what? None of those times work for me. Well, there are 24 more hours in every day. Pick a time. Grab a friend. Come to the prayer room and pray together. Our dream for that room is that it would be set aside and that it would be filled, filled hour by hour throughout the week with God's people who desperately know that they desperately need Him coming together to call together on a Father who loves us, provides for us, and wants to be with us. So as we come to the table this morning, as we take communion, we're reminded again of our desperate need. Even in our sin and our brokenness, though, Jesus has come. God the Father has sent His Son to die for us. We can't save ourselves. We can't forgive our own sins. We can't do this. We can't make our way back to God on our own. We need Jesus to make a way. And so He has made that way through his body and through his blood. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I'd invite you during this time to come and take of communion. As we take the bread, we remember his body broken for us. As we take of the juice, we remember his blood poured out for us. And we accept that by faith, independence, 
that his blood will cover and forgive us our sins. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we are truly grateful that you have come and done what we never could. That you have taken on our sins, which are infinite because of your infinite holiness. You have taken our punishment on yourself. And you've granted us through your death and resurrection forgiveness. You've made a way for us to be with you. You've made a way for us to have access to the Father. Through the cross, Jesus, you made a way for us to pray. We confess again that we desperately need you. We are radically dependent whether we recognize it or not, whether we live it or not. Father, may we live how we are, radically dependent, needy saints who've been made holy by your blood and sent into the world for the sake of your kingdom. Jesus, do in us what you want, we pray. Amen.